much village choir terry coke and terry accompanying on the piano beautiful music and this afternoon we will be together for another vespers worship and uh, i'm looking forward to it i've i've heard the music and i was blessed in the practice and i know it will be a wonderful experience so looking forward to to that this afternoon also just by way of announcement the Deacons have for you right now a card, a prayer card or just an announcement card. So if you would like what's happening here in January, the middle of January, January 22 or so, uh, we are going to be broadcasting a special four-evening series called The Final Empire by Sean Boonstra. And if you'd like to have a prayer card for some people that you'd like to pray for, that you could invite to have come to this series or just a, another brochure that tells a little bit about the, the meetings coming up. Uh, we would love to have you just earnestly lift up this effort that we will have together to spread the good news to our community. We'll be doing some advertising. We'll put it in the newspaper. It'll be on f- our website and on the internet. <clears throat> but the main way that people will be here is... You inviting them and joining us for four nights. It goes Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night in January. I believe it starts in January 21 or so. We'll give you more of those details. Oh, there it says, free event starting January 23 on this one brochure. So, yeah, so it's going to be a wonderful time. Sean Boonstra, it'll be a simulcast, so he'll be preaching across the United States as we receive it by internet signal and uh, a wonderful time together. So, Thank you for praying for that and being a part of that with us here at Village Church. Let's pause for a moment as we just pray to uh, ask God's blessing as we study His Word this morning. Let's, Let's pause and pray. Lord, thank you so much for the goodness and your grace in Jesus Christ. And as we open your Word, we're praying for an inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that Spirit that moved in the lives of your people in ancient days and throughout history. May it move in our hearts and in our lives. And in this place, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last year, when Grandma Dola opened her Christmas gift from our oldest son, um, her grandson, the box said, welcome to you. Maybe you've seen a box like this. Uh, It's from... It's a 23andMe special kit, DNA kit. Dola sent in the samples of her spit (laughs) to find out what her DNA could reveal about her family history. And a while later, she received back information about her maternal and paternal lineage and ways that she could access all sorts of information that would tell her such things as her taste preference, (laughs) how good a musical ear she has or what her relatives have had, the likelihood of curly hair, the predispositions to certain health issues, all of these things. Why do we do genealogy, by the way? Well, because we want to know who our ancestors are, right? Because we're curious about our our origins, 
I'm sure that'll be the case for a young boy named Bowden Jeffrey. And I knew I'd find a way to fit this into this sermon today. <laughs> you guessed it. My third grandchild and our first grandson was born Wednesday night, about 10.30, 7 pounds, 7 ounces, which means perfection, perfection, just in case you're wondering. Perfection, perfection. And someday it'll be the case of Bowden Jeffrey. How do you like that middle name, huh? Not bad. Not a bad choice. Bowden Jeffrey. He'll wonder why he has Jeffrey as his middle name. And who was that guy anyway? What was Jeffrey like? What kind of a person was he? What experiences did he leave, live? Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what life is about? Whether our Relatives are dead or alive, we wonder, don't we? An enthusiast might say, I'm interested because I want to know who I am. I want to know who I am. And here's how one Canadian genealogist put it. Without the past, there's no present, nor can we build a future. I suppose that perspective would be the same thinking about Jesus. After all, he's Messiah. After all, he's the king of the universe. Surely his bloodlines would be perfect. Surely his bloodlines would be honorable and pure. And I'm sure it's the case that as people listen to his story, his genealogy, their chests swelled with pride as they heard these names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, all these wonderful leaders of God, the great kings, the great patriarchs of God's people. This man, Jesus, must have a royal lineage, a regal heritage. And then you come to one of those names, and you go, what? One in particular we'll look at today. And it would have stopped most people's hearts. Reading from Matthew 1 one, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. <clears throat> Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, and whose mother was Tamar. We talked about that last time. Perez, the father of Herzon. Herzon, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab, hmm, who's this lady, I wonder? She's mentioned three times in the New Testament. And this time, the one that we just read, is the only time that her name, her name is mentioned without what seems to be an irreconcilable issue, <laughs> an irreconcilable character flaw for this woman. The other two times she's mentioned in the New Testament are in the book of Hebrews and the book of James. And both those times, it includes this word, which is prostitute. Rahab, the prostitute. The prostitute Rahab. The story is the same in the Old Testament, unfortunately. And her introduction is just as shameful and just as clouded. We find that in the book of Joshua, Chapter number 2, verse number 1, it says, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said. 
especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Rahab. Rahab. That soils the pedigree. That says everything isn't right. Everything's not perfect. He, you can't have her as a part of your lineage and be upstanding. So, who was this woman? Well, let's let the Bible set the scene for us. The book of Joshua. Israel's on the border of Palestine. This land that God promised them. He assured them, their ancestors, years before. They've been wandering in the wilderness 40 years now in this desolate, dry, uninhabitable land between Egypt and Cana, this area called the Sinai Desert. And during those 40 years, every adult that was rescued from Egypt under God's miraculous power and walked through the Red Sea has died. Everyone with the exception of two. Only two adult eyewitnesses of God's miraculous rescue from Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea are still alive. Only two, Joshua and Caleb. And the mantle of leadership has been passed from Moses to Joshua. And now a a new generation stands on the border of God's promised land. And as was done before, Joshua sent two spies to assess the situation. We see there in verse number one, then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. Notice it says there that he sent them secretly. Now that meant not just that they were spies in the land of Canaan, but they were also secret to Israel. No one knew, just a few, I suppose, Joshua and a few leaders, because there would be no foiling this time, no failure this time. But Joshua felt there should be an investigation, the avenues of approach, the fortifications of the city, the readiness of the armies, the emotions of the people. And so, These spies entered, and it says in verse number one, the last part of it, so they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Some people are defined by their occupation. (laughs) That's Rahab's story. The truth is, her name was, well, that was practically her last name. Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. It's an ugly label, isn't it? It's an ugly thing. No matter which way you say it, it just, just has a, something about it. She was a sort of people, she was a sort of person that people talk about but don't talk to. Rahab the harlot. Prostitutes then, prostitutes today, are really social outcasts. They're ostracized. They're, well, like moral lepers. They're tolerated, but in no way are they honored. Even the men who would come to Rahab by night turn their backs on her by day. 
It's interesting, as I was studying this, older commentaries and Bible students, like some of the commentaries that sit on my shelves, try to clean Rahab up a bit. They're concerned about her reputation. And they insist that this word that's translated as prostitute could also be translated as innkeeper. And it could, indeed it could. Innkeeper, someone who keeps a house, a public house, a house of entertainment, not a prostitute. That's what they say. One such scholar, Adam Clark, who wrote a couple of hundred years ago, a British Methodist theologian, is, his comments are exemplary. His six-volume commentary on the whole Bible that he wrote almost 200 years ago and is still a respected tool of Bible study. He goes to some length to explain why Rahab was not a prostitute, but just a, a innkeeper, a hostess, a tavern or tavern keeper. And here's his conclusion. This is what he said in his commentary. It's most likely that she was a single woman or a widow who got her bread honestly by keeping a house of entertainment for strangers. Entertainment, all right. <laughs> Bible scholarship, however, today follows the lead of New Testament uh, writers. The New Testament is clear. Two times in the New Testament, James and Paul, they give a blatant introduction to this woman, cutting to the chase. Rahab was a harlot. You saw it already in those two verses. And undoubtedly, her home, situated at the gate of, of Jericho, served many a weary traveler as they came into this city. And maybe it's something that she did there, you know, just offering lodging, food, and amenities you know, to those who were stopping by. But, but I wonder, why this hesitancy to, to call Rahab what she was, to tell it like it is. Maybe, maybe one reason, and this is what Adam Clark and some others bring out, one reason is that, well, if she really was a prostitute, it would call into question the Israeli scouts that go there. I mean, what are they doing stopping in this place? Why would they enter a place that they knew to be off limits by God, the God who was sending them into this land? No one of this caliber would, would do that. And also, they say, this is what they also reason, that Rahab, she couldn't have been a harlot because she married an Israeli prince. Solomon was his name. No one would marry such a person, especially not a big shot like Solomon. Someone of his caliber would never go for a foreign prostitute as a wife, ever. To add to the the argument, this is how Adam Clark finishes. He says, it's not very likely that the providence of God would have suffered a person of such notoriously bad character to enter into the sacred lineage of his genealogy. We're trying to protect him, aren't we? How could God have the heritage of this? How would God allow such a thing as this? to include a prostitute in the line of the Savior. Why would he do that? Why would God do such a thing? I'll tell you why. 
Because God is love. That's why. Because God is love. And to this, maybe added just the last thing that Adam Clark says. Um, oh, I, I, I went there already, but here's how Ellen White, I love what she says about this God of grace and his acceptance of Rahab. His love is so broad, so deep, so full, and this is Ellen White talking about Rahab, that it penetrates everywhere. It lifts out of Satan's influence those who have been deluded by his deceptions and places them within reach of the throne of God. Can anyone say amen? The throne encircled by the rainbow of promise. You know, isn't it the case that sometimes truth is stranger than fiction? God's grace, God's love, it's amazing. And, you know, it was really providential. Providential. God had this place, this person, this woman, this being of disgusting human depravity. He had her in mind before those two spies ever left to enter the land. God knew that there was a woman there in that place whose heart, whose heart, was longing for him. God knew. So the men arrive at Jericho and step in quickly to this place right beside the gate. And they've already been spotted. Verse number two and three, it says, So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. Now that wasn't a suggestion. By the way, what these men carried to Rahab was not just a a request. It was an order. And it was also an appeal to her patriotic soul. Do you see it there in those verses? These men have come to spy out the land. They're foreigners. And Rahab is faced with the most challenging choice she's ever made in her life. This is a decision that would determine her course forever. Sometimes it's the case that we make such choices in life. Verse number four. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. (laughs) That's a strange thing to do, Rahab. These men are threatening you. But there was something moving in Rahab's heart. Something moving that had been moving in her for a long time. She knew the story. Everyone in Jericho knew the story of Israel. Forty years before, before Rahab had been born, of course. Forty years before, though, the story had it that Israel had encamped almost in the same spot, sent 12 spies into the land. Forty years before, they had heard these stories of of what had happened with Israel. They knew about the Red Sea. They knew about the manna. They knew about the water. They knew about how even the power of the greatest king on earth, Pharaoh, had been broken by the ten plagues. They had heard about how God had sustained his people. They heard about how the Amalekites had been routed when Moses merely lifted his hands. They heard about 
how Balak, king of Moab, had tried to enlist the help of Balaam, but that didn't even work. They heard about all these things, and now they're back just across the Jordan, just a few miles from Jericho, only a few miles to the east, and the whole city is petrified. The whole city, the entire population. They're wondering, how can they possibly escape annihilation? How can they possibly escape defeat? Knees are knocking. Hearts are pounding on every street corner. And Rahab has reasoned these things through. And she's about to make the most important decision of her life. She concocts a story, a a story that's cunning, and uh, she's learned that in her line of business for many years. And she says there, verse 4 and 5, yes, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left, and I don't know which way they meant. They, They went. Now, she couldn't deny the obvious. I mean, the fact that they were there had been reported to the king. Men had already seen these two enter her doors. But you know, a lot of people squeeze through the gates at dusk and out of the city. And she says to these guards, go, go after them quickly. You may catch them. They went that away. Have you ever heard that one before? They went that away. It's the oldest line in the book. Some see what Rahab did as subterfuge, lying. As you might imagine, there's been some discussion about that. I mean, Rahab lies. There's plenty of rightness about her, but why this wrongness of her response? You can't dodge the fact that it's just out of sync with the clear teaching of Scripture, with what what she was learning about God. I mean, it's the ninth of the ten big ones, isn't it? Thou shalt not testify against you, falsely testify. And the New Testament echoes the same. Paul says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. And not just those two, you could marshal a whole host of verses from the New Testament and Old Testament, to to prove that lying is not to be a part of the Christian life. But things are rarely simple, are they? And we should be careful how quickly we judge Rahab's strategy. So let me just ask you in the quietness of this place, what would you have done had you been in Rahab's place, what would you have done? The truth of the matter is that occasionally people find themselves in such places as that in life. Occasionally it does happen. When the the options are of fatal consequence, sometimes that is the case. Rahab did lie, and she sent her murderous agents on a wild goose chase. She did. But we mustn't get stuck in the quagmire of endless 
ethical wranglings, right? As one commentator put it, he said it this way, it's tragic when people snag their pants on the nail of Rahab's lie. I kind of like that, huh? (laughs) And never get around to hearing Rahab's truth. And Rahab's truth is that the Bible itself doesn't condemn her, but honors her. It honors her. The book of Hebrews includes her in the hall of fame of faith. (laughs) Verse number 31, chapter 11. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she was welcomed, she welcomed the spies, was not killed, and with with those who were disobedient. And then James also praises her for her belief that took action. He says, In chapter 2, verse 31, by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So, having sent the Jericho agents on their fruitless mission that away, Rahab goes to the roof to talk to these two Hebrew spies that she has nestled away. And this now was likely the most crucial conversation she's ever had. She says in verse number 9, I know that the Lord has given you this land. Now just pause for a minute. Look at that. I know that who? The Lord. Who's she talking about? Is she talking about the, the gods of Jericho, Baals, and Ashtoreth? No. She's speaking about Yahweh, the God of Israel, the mighty God. Could it be that he's the sovereign Lord of the universe? Could it be that this, this one who rules over all is moving in the heart of this woman, this foreigner, this prostitute, this unmarried, this unworthy? Rahab? God? Verse number 9, continuing. And that great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. She's afraid, but not as afraid as everyone else. She's not too afraid to be talking now. That fear does not stop her faith from acting to save them or to speak to them plainly. How those two spies must have admired her valor Her faith, Rahab the lion-hearted. Verses 10 and 11. We've heard, Rahab continues, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. We heard of it. Our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Get this, get this. For the Lord your God is the God in heaven above all and on earth below. Don't you think the angels rejoiced at the sound of those words? Don't you think? Rahab the harlot. Rahab the Canaanite. Rahab the worshiper of Baal. Wait, Rahab worse and worse and worse, has come to faith. She's come to true faith in God. That God is God. The Lord is God. She'd seen his power at work in her own life. She'd heard of his power at work for Israel. And now she's ready to accept 
the reality of his existence and confess with her mouth to these two witnesses that the one that they call God is really the one true and only God. This human victory that others would see as human victory coming up soon, this soon-to-be victory wasn't by human might. It wouldn't be by human power. Rahab knew that. It would be a work of God. That's what it would be, a work of God. The same work that was happening in her own heart right now. She would be, she would be God's trophy of grace. God's trophy of grace. Salvation was working in her. Rahab, the same way it works in you and in me. One commentator put it succinctly. First, she heard the word, then she believed. This belief led to faith, which then led to works. In the process, she was saved. That kind of wraps it up, doesn't it? That's what happened in her heart. Rahab saw the arrival of these spies on her doorstep, not merely as a military reconnaissance effort. She saw them as the work of God in her life, a special incursion of the God of the universe into her life designed to save her. That is what was really happening. Those spies didn't have to go. They didn't have to come look at the land. Joshua and Israel needed no knowing of the physical fortifications of human emotions in this place. They didn't need to know any of that. This was going to be God's battle. But this woman, Rahab, had to be spared. She had to be spared. She must become part of the display of God's saving grace in the world. Rahab's mission to the rooftop that evening wasn't merely to inform the spies of the panic in Jericho, not in the least. It was a desperate plea. Notice verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will know that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Her concern was not just for herself, but for her whole family. Apparently she was childless, but she had a family. She had brothers and sisters. She was, she was on her own, but she wasn't alone. She had a mother and a father and sisters and brothers. This professional criminal, this woman without moral standards, had a tender love, a saving interest in her family, her brothers and sisters. Bless her heart. Bless her heart. What family wouldn't want a warrior princess like Rahab to fight for their safety? God knows her heart, just like Jesus knew the heart of the woman caught in adultery. God knows her heart just like he knew the heart of that woman, that, that streetwalker woman that washed the feet of Jesus with costly perfume. God knows her heart just like he knows your heart 
in my heart. How often, though, do we miss the native goodness at work in people's lives? But God always sees. God always knows. And he's looking. He's looking down deep. He's looking into the heart, not at the superficial. He looks past those that look righteous, but are more about promoting than anything else. And he looks at the heart. She says to these men, give me a sure sign, verse 12, 13, give me a sure sign that you'll spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and the sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Rahab has seen more than her share of broken promises. So she presses these two guys for a sure sign. Then she says, I mean, um, the, the spies say, verse 14 and 15, our lives for yours, the men assured her. If you don't tell us what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was a part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return. Then go on your way. How do I, why do I get the feeling that this escape hadn't been the first one from her window? (laughs) How many of us keep a rope tucked in our bedroom closet? (laughs) Just in case. Verses 17 to 21. Now the men said to her, this oath you made to us, swear swear will not be binding on us unless... When we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in your window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood be on their own heads, we will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if, the hand, if one hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we're doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you have said. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she she tied a scarlet cord in the window. A scarlet cord. A scarlet cord. Scarlet so it can't be missed in contrast to the drab walls of this city. Scarlet because they don't want to mistake That window, when things are tumbling down. Scarlet, because, well, because Rahab's sin, her sins, are red light scarlet. And she's just going to make it obvious that that's who she is. You know, I I can identify with that. That's what God asks us to do, to confess our sins. But his grace is so amazing. His grace is so amazing. Because when we confess our sins like like Rahab did, and when we hang a cord in our window, in other words, letting that be known, that we are sinners, and we repent, leaving that old life behind, and by God's power, walking in new life. We're forgiven. We're washed. We're clean. We're restored without a spot, without a blemish. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white 
as snow. Red. Why red? Well, it's also the color of blood. Like the blood that was sacrificed from the animal and smeared over the doorpost of every house that was spared the night that the Lord passed over in Egypt. The same. The blood was a sign. The scarlet cord is a sign now. That crimson cord on Rahab's house is also reminiscent of Ezekiel's graphic vision. You can see it there in Ezekiel chapter 9 where God instructs this worker, this special agent, this angel messenger to go throughout the city. And it says in verse number nine, uh, 4 of verse 9, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over the problems happening here. They lament the spiritual and moral degeneracy happening in Israel. A scarlet cord is something like that. It's something like also the seal that's mentioned in, in Revelation chapter 7. God's last day people are marked. God's mark, God's seal on their foreheads, but the devil's people are marked as well. Seal of God. Mark of the beast. Both signs are fraught with eternal consequences. The Hebrew term for the, the rope or cord that are used here in these, this verse are different words. In other words, she didn't leave a scarlet rope. It was just a little, a little ribbon. And she ties it to her window, just kind of like Jesus prepared, asked us to prepare when he said, therefore keep watch, because you don't know the day or the hour. And so the time when the time came that, that, that the walls would come tumbling down Rahab's house that was attached to the walls of Jericho's uh, fortification would not be broken. Verse 25 of chapter 6, but Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had uh, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. You get that? She lives among the Israelites to this day. When she walked out of that house, she left everything. Everything. She didn't look back like some others have looked back. She became part of God's family. And she lived among them to this day. Not just to this day, because Rahab the harlot became an ancestor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Like Matthew said, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. One commentator wrote, Thus, poor Rahab, the muddy, the defiled, became the fountainhead of the river of the water of life. For with God, it's not who you were that matters, but what you are becoming that matters. That's what matters. Rahab's outrageous, courageous act 
earn her a spot in the honor roll of faith. She's one of only two women mentioned there in the book of Hebrews. James also includes her as a reference of people who live by faith. So what's our lesson? That no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you've been, take heart. You can be made new in Jesus Christ today. Today. By being like Rahab, saying yes to one of the most important decisions you can ever make. I like the way one commentator said, and I'll close with this, if God can turn a harlot into a holy vessel, entrusting her with the very genes that would one day produce the king of kings, surely those of us with a past can leave our shame in the rubble and walk away, fixing our eyes on the one who washes us white as snow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ. You went to the uttermost to save that one person in Jericho. You knew that she was the only one that was looking and longing. And you're looking today. As scripture says, your eyes are running to and fro throughout the earth to show yourself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to you. And so, Lord, we're lifting up our hearts to you, asking you forgive, asking you restore, asking you repair, renew, empower as we walk from this place into your arms, always and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.